in the Late Show Library this week, I'm very happy to say, is a regular on our program, has been since uh, since day one, and I thought, time to uh, actually uh, bring him into the library and uh, and open up these books uh, a little more wide-ranging than we do for about three or four minutes each night. The books, of course, I'm talking about are the For the Record books, and the man who's written both of them is Steve Woods. Uh, hello, Steve. Lovely to have you on the program in a different form. Well, it's indeed, Kevin. Good, good to talk to you. Now, look. First up, I guess uh, everyone who's who's heard the spots and uh, and all the material that uh, that are in the uh, in the segments each night come out of these two books. So, tell us a little about uh, Steve Woods. Uh, obviously, you're a radio broadcaster of many years. Oh yes, I've been around the traps for quite a while, and I found myself towards uh, the end of everything um, working at a company that actually provided sort of documentaries and countdowns that used to go all over Australia. And uh, one of the shows that we put together was a show called My Generation, which was hosted by um, Jonathan Coleman. And I think we had Gavin Wood there for a while and Peter Harrison. And um, it became the biggest syndicated radio show in Australia. And it was all based around the idea that for a couple of hours, we'd take a walk down memory lane to um, look at a particular year of the past, but uh, play the music of that year, talk about some of the main events that happened in that year. And as time went on, we suddenly realised that the, the more nitty-gritty and minutiae we could come up with for each year, the audience seemed to love it. And yeah. in particular, anything that happened in Australia, because so much of the internet and so many reference books and things that are already out there um, are either American-based or they are written in the UK, which is okay, but it just doesn't cover stuff that's close to our hearts like Skyhooks and Billy Thorpe and, and, and Excess, those sorts of things. Yeah. So um, as time went on, I found myself really researching Australia and getting quite frustrated how how little there was written about Australian stuff. I mean, even if you Google John English, it's kind of a little disappointing how much is actually on the internet about him, and yet I think he was a fantastic talent. Yeah, no, that is uh, is very true, and I know know in my uh, my years in broadcasting, finding out stuff about... Um, you know the price of milk in Australia, and uh, and what uh, what was on the front page of the Herald Sun in uh, you know nineteen eighty five. All that all that sort of stuff was very hard to get. Well, absolutely. And so I started to make notes and notes and notes about every year. And uh, and Jono was saying the same thing. Jonathan Coleman, when he would come and record these things, he said it's just incredible. He said the more sort of household trivia you can come up with, the, the the better the show seems to sound. And so and that's what we used to do. And then also we used to focus on just sort of events that people may have attended. Like, for instance, when the Beatles came to Melbourne, um, you know, were you one of the 200,000 fans that were packed yeah. into Exhibition Street out the front of Southern Cross Hotel when they were staying there? Um, and all of a sudden people think, oh, hang on, you're talking about my life. And um, and that's really the inspiration for these books because uh, then after I sort of uh, left all of that, um, people started to contact me saying, any chance of publishing all this information uh-huh. if you've got it? And of course, you sort of sit there thinking, well, who really writes books? I mean, I mean, I'd never considered it at all. And but I found myself sitting in front of a computer, and I thought, oh, if I can get twenty pages out of this, we'll see how we go. Well, four hundred and fifty pages later, we yeah. have a book. Mm. Yes, and and a big and a big uh, tome that it is. Um, was it was it like opening up a you know a can of worms, literally? Um, absolutely, and also to find out how much stuff on the internet is false. Um, and also, so it was important to sort of go back to the source wherever I could. Um, one of the amazing things was even going back to vinyl records um, to have a look at information that was on those because sometimes the CDs, if you like, were being released, but without the little book. And it, with, the book used to have all the information of, yeah. that we used to read 
inside the vinyl records of where it was recorded and who was the backup singers and, and those sorts of things. And um, so I, I was careful to try and clean all of that up. And also the other thing was I actually found myself in many ways writing my own sort of autobiography in many ways because I, I was sort of focusing on things that I've done uh, throughout my life. And I'm thinking, well, if I did it, probably other people did too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, and and so the, we, pop, the pop culture, I mean, the television, uh, you know, was, was up and about in 56. So it had been around for a few because you start the book starts in 1964, which I guess is the Beatles and when, when pop culture did start. Look, I had to draw a line in the sand somewhere, and I thought, do you go back to 56? I decided to start with 64 because I thought, look, the Beatles came to town, and you could, I mean, you could argue that the Beatles changed culture, and it changed fashion, it changed music. Um, there was a sort of an optimism in the youth when the Beatles came to town that we'd never seen before. Yeah. And I thought, well, 1964 was a time of change in so many areas. And, uh, and I thought, well, let, let's start there. I mean, for instance, I mean, did you know that the Beatles actually performed six concerts at Melbourne Festival Hall? Did they? Uh, they, happened, they did two a day, June 15, 16, and 17. And even the set list that the Beatles played at Festival Hall was interesting. I saw her standing there. Uh, you can't do that. All my loving. She loves you. Till there was you. Roll over Beethoven. Can't buy me love. This boy, Twist and Shout, and Long Tall Sally. And their concerts went for about 25 minutes. <laughs> Uh, yet, legend, yet, yet, it's the stuff legends are made of. You know, in twenty-five minutes. If you did that today, you would have hordes screaming, and you would be absolutely murdered on social media. Oh, absolutely! But I mean, that's you know, the songs went two minutes, and that's what happened. And um, and I understand Ian Meldrum was uh, sort of thrown out of the uh, the concert at one point because he was <laughs> screaming too loud. So um, yeah, there's a lot of fun things that were going on with the Beatles. Funnily enough, you talk about pop culture, and this book is very much about our pop culture. There is a direct link to the Beatles to HR Puff and Stuff. What? Well, if you didn't have the Beatles, you wouldn't have the Monkeys, right? Because the Monkeys was a TV show kind of based on the idea of the Beatlemania crazy times of being in a pop group. Yep. The Monkeys morphed into the banana splits. Oh, really? Because, again, it was a children's sort of uh, a TV show where the four characters were in a band and they were sort of like the monkeys were and they were sort of very colourful and they had different costumes and a different look. The, char- the people that actually made the costumes for the banana splits, Legal, Bingo, Drooper and Snorty, um, they were then asked to come up with the uh, the costumes for HR Puff and stuff on the success of the banana splits. Okay. So there you are. If you didn't have the Beatles, you wouldn't have HR Puff and stuff. And what were the names of the uh, the, the banana splits again? <laughs> it Legal, Bingo, Drooper and Snorky. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue like John, Paul, George and Ringo, does it? It just, <laughs> it just doesn't do it, does it? Well, then we could go to HR Puff and stuff and we start talking about Witchy Poo and uh, Orson and Seymour and Kling and Clang. Right, you have got an awful head full of uh, some uh, some uh, extraordinary trivia now, haven't you, having written these two books? Do you know something weird about HR Puff and stuff? Um, I remember growing up watching this every day on Channel 9 on Saturday mornings. Clearly. They only made 17 episodes. Oh, wow. Um, it, they went broke while they made it. The last episode is actually kind of a best of that they edited together just to fulfil the uh, the contract. They then sort of wound everything up and they kind of let everybody go because they weren't making any money. It hadn't really rated over in the States. And then all of a sudden, that sort of repeated Saturday morning cartoon 
environment, they started to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. HR Puffin stuff became so big, they suddenly had to get the gang back together again and they decided to make a movie. Uh, and they actually brought back Mama Cass uh, from The Mamas and the Puppers as Head Witch. Oh, wow. And it's an awful movie. So don't bother trying to find it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You've saved us all 90 minutes. For the record, uh, book.com.au is the website uh, that uh, Steve runs, and you can you can purchase the books there. Steve Woods is my guest uh, in the Late Show Library. Australian Pop Culture, 64 to 2017. That was that was book number one, which is, uh, you know, fascinating. It's got all the, all the television shows, the news events. When, uh, Sport. When, who, won, who won the Melbourne Cup? Who won the Brownlow Medal? All those things are in there. Uh, who and, won the Gold Logie? Yep. Exactly. It's all, it's all there. And, 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 and the thing is, um, and, and this is getting into sort of a, a radio marketing talk here, when you program a radio station, you look at the audience you want to attract and you look at their teenage years. Because when you're a teenager, your world explodes. Yeah. And suddenly the movies that were being released, the music that was being played on Countdown, the, uh, all of these things that you were exposed to are the most important things that you're going to carry with you for the rest of your life in a really strange kind of way. Uh, I remember uh, that when David Cassidy passed away, I remember there was a radio station that couldn't work out why there were so many 55-year-old women who were on the phone in tears because uh-huh. they couldn't understand that. And I said, well, that's the age group that really liked David Cassidy. Yeah. And, and so the thing is with this book, there is a chapter on every year and what you do is you go back to your teenage years, and I promise you one thing, you will read those chapters and you'll be thinking, oh, my goodness, this is my backyard. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, no, I've uh, done and, it many times. And then, you, and, the, and then your sons and daughters will, will read it, and they will go to different years yeah. with the same impact. My, my two sort of young 20-year-old boys, I mean, uh, are creatures of Toy Story and, and all of those sorts of movies. Now, I like Toy Story, but and for them, it's just the greatest movie ever made. But for me, I'm more into Greece. Yep. And um, so, so the thing is, it's something. It's the sort of book that really can appeal to anybody because the moment they find the chapter that's about them, they are glued to it. So you uh, you finished that one, and then obviously, uh, the, a lot of people started talking to you about. Okay, so. Uh, book number two. What are you going to do? Did you did you already have something in your in your mind for the second volume, or did that sort of uh, pop up? No, I was a little bit horrified with that because it was coming from everywhere, and we sold, goodness me, a couple of thousand of these books fairly quickly, and yeah. uh, and th- th- we had the website that was ticking over, and it was available at readings and uh, Avenue Books and uh, and places like that, and um, uh, and also Dimmicks. The, the, and, of course, they are saying, what's the next one going to be about? And I'm thinking, well, I've done everything I know. Yeah. Um, but then people said, but what about the music that you were playing in my generation? There must have been stories there that you've got. And I'm thinking, well, maybe. And, um, and it, it occurred to me that there was, an, uh, that there was a, a time that I was actually programming a, a radio show called Nights with Alice Cooper. And, I was again, that went all over Australia. And we would be in contact with Alice Cooper every day, and he would record this show. But we would, when when Alice came to Melbourne, um, we would spend a lot of time together and doing interviews and things like that about his career. And I remember there was a a story he told me that um, that back in the early seventies, when Alice Cooper was starting, he said he was part of a sort of a musical community, if you like, that was all based in Los Angeles. They had a, they had about five or six studios. And all the bands like the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, Linda Ronstadt, uh, would be in there recording 
their albums and Alice Cooper would be in there as well. And the musicians are sort of roaming up and down the corridor and they're sticking their heads into each other's studios to say, well, you know, what are you doing? You know, can I help you? And he said it was a really lovely sort of communal support that you had. And he was laughingly telling me that he said, I've had every Beatle come and play on Alice Cooper records, but I, I, unfortunately I don't remember which Beatle or which song because it's so long ago, and, I, and he said, I actually don't re- remember very much about that particular year, to be honest. And, uh, Heavy drinking and thought, will do that to you. Exactly. And so I thought, well, that's, a, you know, that's an interesting story. Again, I started to research that to find out that it was absolutely true. And not only that, is that it's been going on for a long time where all sorts of artists are helping each other out. Um, in a day that you didn't have to be on the contract or managers or lawyers got involved. You literally just wanted to help each other. And uh, I know Alice Cooper did talk about Paul McCartney coming in one day and Paul McCartney playing drums on one of his songs because Paul was sitting there listening to it, said, no, he said, you got the drums wrong. He said, let me do it for you. And so he jumps into the studio and, and fixes it up for him. And um, so indeed, um, there, were, there were artists that were trying to help each other to try and get a hit for them as well. But then as time went on, you would have the Eagles and uh, Neil Young and Linda Ronstadt becoming very, very popular and became the sound of radio uh, back in the 70s. And so suddenly they became the sound that people wanted. And all of a sudden, they're being hired out to people like Warren Zevon, who everybody was a friend of Warren Zevon. And so he's doing his Werewolves of London album and everybody is desperate for him to have a hit single so he could be as successful as they were. And... So therefore, you then have a look at this and you're thinking, goodness me, look who's actually singing backup vocals on this or who's um, uh, playing bass guitar on this or, or, or the strangest stories start to come from everywhere. And the more I looked, the more I found. And um, the, 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 so the second book became the music book. And the second book of, uh, for the record is, is like an A to Z of all your favourite artists. And inside that, then we say, okay, and here's all their hit singles. And did you know this or that about this particular hit single? And you'll be quite astounded at some of the stories that you sort of find. I mean, uh, Neil Young, for instance, you know, was uh, the backup vocals from um, Nicolette Larson, who actually used one of his songs, Lot of Love, later on to help her career. Uh, uh, Linda Ronstadt would be singing on some of his songs. Uh, James Taylor would be singing on some of his songs as well. And it's all just favour for the boys. But it, it's um, it, it's just really interesting where people sort of help each other out. I mean, you might recall the um, the organ or piano player that helped the Beatles out quite a lot, or Billy Preston. Oh, yeah. And when Billy, when the Beatles broke up, all the Beatles were terribly keen for Billy to have a hit single. And um, so Billy started on his uh, solo record of the sort of early early 70s. And he came up with a song called That's the Way God Planned It. And that became sort of probably his biggest single in many ways. But when you actually have a look at that song, it featured George Harrison and Eric Clapton on guitar. It had Keith Richards playing bass guitar, Ginger Baker from Cream on drums. And you might remember the, um, the band called Blue Mink yep. uh, that had the song Melting Pot. Yep. Their lead singer was Madeline Bell. And she became a... Um, a very big session singer for all sorts of people. So she was there on backup vocals as well. So it's really a best of uh, musicians desperately helping you out. I mean, I mean, you couldn't go wrong with that, could you? No, absolutely but, not. It was a great song too, I must have been. 
yeah. I mean, look, and the other thing was that there started to become connections between artists. If you like one artist, you probably like another artist. You can't quite, really kind of work out why. It probably is because you've got the same people playing on the, on the songs. For instance, um, uh, people that like Bruce Springsteen probably don't mind Meatloaf music and vice versa. And that's because the guy playing piano, uh, guitar and drums are actually out of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band. Yeah. So you've got the same musicians with their same type of style of music, if you like, helping each other out. Bonnie Tyler, she did A Total Eclipse of the Heart. Well, that was a song that was written by Jim, Jim Steinman. Um, and Jim Steinman, of course, wrote most of Meatloaf's material. That song, Total Eclipse of the Heart, was actually offered to Meatloaf uh, along with another song called Making Love Out of Nothing at All. And Meatloaf and Jim at the time had had a bit of a falling out. And Meatloaf didn't want to share any royalties with um, with Jim, even though Jim had written the song. So Meatloaf knocked them back. And so Total Eclipse of the Heart went to Bonnie Tyler. And Making Love Out of Nothing at All, you might re- recall, went to Air Supply. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> again, the drums on all of these songs were played by uh, Max Weinberg and the keyboards by uh, Roy Bitten from... Bruce Springsteen, the uh, East Street Band. Uh, Rick Derringer, who was a member of the McCoys, yep. that hit single, Hang, Hang On Sloopy. He played guitar on the song. So it, it just seemed incredible that the, uh, these musicians were there constantly helping each other out as much as they possibly could. Steve Woods is my guest in the Late Show Library. Uh, the books, of course, we talk about every night on the program, uh, the For the Record books, available for the recordbook.com.au and at uh, bookstores all around the place. All right, well, uh, Volume 1, uh, then we've gone to Classic Hits and Urban Myths, uh, Volume 2. So what's Volume 3? Oh, please, don't give me a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you one, one other story which I always love? One of my favourite songs yep. is Backman Turner Overdrive's Taking Care of Business. Yep. Always Great. love it. It's a really weird song in the way it's been written because it actually doesn't have a chorus and there's no bridge and there's no change from the verse to the chorus, mm-hmm. which is unusual. Yep. Normally, songs will change to move into like a different area of the song. But So all they've actually come up with is one particular part of the song, which was for the, for the chorus, and then it just kept going. It actually concerned the band. And they were working in the studio trying to work out there's something weird about this song that we haven't quite worked out yet. While they were actually uh, working on this, a pizza guy uh, by the name of Norman Durkey arrived. Oh, Norman. And Norman delivered the pizzas, and he said, um, that's a great song you're working on there. He said, but I reckon you need some piano playing on it. <laughs> and so back when Turner Overdrive paid for the pizza, and they sent Norman on his way, Hours later, they were still stuck on the song and they couldn't work it all out. So they actually rang the pizza parlour back again and they said, can you pop Norman back down to the studio? (laughs) Norman also had mentioned that he played piano. And they said, can you play piano on this song? So Norman came back, he played piano on it and taking care of business was finished. But it's still an unusual song. Wow. Not every day that the pizza delivery bloke finishes up on the song. uh, That's right. That becomes a, a worldwide smash. I mean, look, there's so many great stories in this book. I mean, there's a lot of people, that, you know, the things where we talk about who's singing backup vocals, but there's things like um, Queen's Another One Bites the Dust actually started as an idea from Michael Jackson, who actually had recorded a number of songs with uh, uh, Freddie Mercury, and those songs are sort of being leaked onto the internet every so often. But at the time, Michael Jackson was saying to Freddie, you've got to get into this disco dance club area instead of being a rock band. 
And that's where the idea for another, another one, Bites the Dust, actually came from. Um, Belinda Carlisle from the Go-Go's, she was recording uh, Leave the Light On For Me, and she suddenly had a Beatle volunteer to help her out wow. on this particular song. George Harrison thought she had a great voice and happened to be in the studios, and so she has George Harrison playing on some of her solo hits, which is really strange. And um, the, the other thing is um, probably one of the more bizarre things. I know in the early 80s, the sound of dire straits became very popular. I mean, radio couldn't get enough dire straits. Oh. Absolutely. So behind the scenes, uh, the record industry couldn't get enough of Mark Knopfler. And all of a sudden, uh, Mark had written a song called Private Dancer. And he didn't know what was wrong with it because the lyrics didn't quite make sense to him, but he wrote it originally to Dire Straits. Uh, he didn't. He suddenly realised that the, lyrically it was wrong for a guy to sing about I'll Be Your Private Dancer. And so he, it ended up going to Tina Turner. And, of course, that became the title track for her album in the, in the mid-70s as well. And actually on that particular track for Tina Turner, it's basically Dire Straits behind the scenes oh, playing all the instruments. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and Jeff Beck is actually playing the lead guitar on that song. One of the great guitarists well, of all time. Yeah, for sure. The, uh, the other thing is uh, he became, Mark Knopfler became very, very um, important to a lot of artists because they thought that they could use him as a, a, a record producer and um, Bob Dylan in the early 80s had a number of albums produced by Mark Knopfler because he thought that that would give him sort of the 80s sound that everybody was going for at the time but I mean and who would you actually when would you ever clump these two guys together it is uh, quite an amazing uh, sort of a coupling there do you hire yourself out for musical trivia night Steve because you just have a head full of stuff <laughs> that must just roll around you must wake up in the middle of the night and go oh my god Linda Ronstadt the Eagles sang backup vocals no 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 do you know what now actually drives me crazy is that uh, any kind of trivia from the last 50 years or any kind of music information, I, I stumble over something in a book or a newspaper or on TV or something rather, and they say, oh, you know, do, do you know that uh, um, the, the Beach Boys, uh, Barbara Ann, wasn't actually sung by the Beach Boys? And um, it was actually sung by uh, Dean Torrance from Jan and Dean. Oh, from Jan and Dean, yeah. Because uh, Brian Wilson at the time had a sore throat. And you can actually, at the end of the song, hear Carl Wilson actually say, thanks, Dean. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, Glenn Campbell used to play for the Beach Boys. He yeah. actually replaced Brian Wilson for a period of time because Glenn Campbell was a highly sought-after session guitar player like Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. Yep. And the other strange Beach Boys story is um, that Captain and Tennille actually met when they were members of the Beach Boys because they were part of the touring group of the Beach Boys. Captain used to play piano. Yep. And uh, when he wanted some time off, he auditioned to Neil uh, to replace him as the uh, as the piano player when they went on tour. And um, one thing led to another, and of course the captain and Neil, well, Neil regards herself as the only. Uh, beach girl in the Beach Boys. Right. Uh, I mentioned the expression "can of worms" at the start of this interview, and uh, it is, isn't it? I mean, you just uh, because uh, and as each uh, new song is made, each new record's made, there's more and more of these stories uh, develops. Well, and actually, one thing that amazes me because I mean, I, the, the books are, are fairly intensive, and there's lots of great stories. Um, but I must admit that every time I sort of watch TV now, and all of a sudden a little piece of trivia just pops up from somewhere and you think, oh, I better go and check out whether that's real or not. And I go to all this research and then I go to my book 
which I should have done in the first place, I've already got it in there. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, thinking, I'm slowly going mad. I'm yes. now researching myself. Oh, well, you've come to the right program to be part of then uh, if you're slowly going mad. I've, I've fast-tracked that, so we'll get you there quicker than uh, normal if you keep involved with us here on The Late Show, I can tell you. Hey, Steve, <laughs> uh, terrific to catch up and get some of the uh, the detail behind, uh, behind the books. If there is a Volume 3, we'll turn it into a segment for The Late Show. I, try, I promise you on that. Absolutely, and you'll be the first to know. Yeah, of course, if anybody's yeah. interested in the books, have a look at them online. I mean, they're yep. fantastic uh, books, I think, for anybody, really, because if you like music or you like sort of just growing up in, in Melbourne or Victoria, Australia, all of a sudden, everything in these books is going to make a whole lot of sense. Yep. So the website is fortherecordbook.com.au. Uh, everything's there, or you can go to Dimmix, Readings, or Avenue. Beautiful. Thank you, Steve Woods. Lovely having you as part of The Late Show, and just terrific to have you in The Late Show library. 